He was starving, he said. By how thin he was, he was down for at least a month. He likely would not have survived much longer on his own. I think we were cutting it close to the end, Hayes said. The next morning, Hayes observed the calcification on the eagle's wing, a sign the break had healed. It's nearly impossible to tell how he had gotten injured. Perhaps he was struck by a passing vehicle or had flown into something. After five days, Hayes drove Dickinson, so named because eagles rescued in Iowa are named after the county in which they are found. Uh, say, she drove him to Saving Our Avian Resources, or SOAR, a Carroll County organization specializing in raptor rehabilitation. Dickinson was settled in, SOAR Executive Director Kay Newman said. He had, a broca, he had broken the radius and the ulna bones near the wrist joint, similar to a fracture forearm in a human. The break healed at an odd angle, but the wrist joint appears to be working, so time will tell if Dickinson will fly again. He will spend a few more weeks in intensive care to return his body weight to normal and finish antibiotics. A blood test revealed a low level of lead exposure, probably from eating an animal that had been shot with lead ammunition, but he's not showing any outward symptoms of lead poisoning. Right now he's doing as good as he should, Newman said. We are just going to have to wait to see how he does in the flight pen. Once transferred to a flight pen, Dickinson will figure out how to fly again at his own pace. If he can, he will be given time to regain the strength needed to return to the wild. If he cannot fly, he will have to remain in captivity, perhaps being featured in educational programs. Regardless, if Dickinson never returns to the air, Lynn said the late night spent out in the cold to rescue him was worth it. It was just something we needed to do, Lynn said. You could just see how frail he was. I'm just happy to hear he might fly again. His return to the wild would definitely be a joyous occasion. That he endured so much, survived, and will recover is reason enough to celebrate. Dickinson's case is a reminder to always call in an expert when finding injured or abandoned wildlife, said Amanda Hayes, president of the board of Forever Wildlife Lodge and Clinic, a Woodbury County nonprofit wildlife rescue organization. Never approach an animal on your own. It can be dangerous and result in injuries to you, the animal, or both. If you find an injured wild animal, Hayes suggested visiting the Iowa Department of Natural Resources website and searching for its listing of licensed wildlife rehabilitators throughout the state. Sioux City Police Seeking Come-and-Go Robbery Suspect Sioux City Police are searching for a man who robbed a Morningside Come-and-Go at gunpoint Thursday night. At 10.42 p.m., officers responded to a report of an armed robbery at the gas station and convenience store at 1925 South Lakeport. An unknown suspect entered the business brandishing a firearm and demanding money. The suspect fled the business on foot with an undisclosed amount of cash, the Sioux City Police Department said in a statement. Officers searched the area but were not able to locate the suspect, who is described by witnesses as a Hispanic male of average build. The suspect is said to be between 5 feet ten, five inches and 5 feet 7 inches. At the time of the robbery, he was wearing a dark, dark clothing, a puffy coat, and a black hat with a flat bill. 
Anyone with information is asked to call the Sioux City Police Department at 712-279-6440 or Crime Stoppers at 712-258-8477. 68-year-old woman dies in multi-vehicle crash, uh, crash on Thursday. A 68-year-old woman is dead after a three-vehicle crash Thursday night near Sioux City's downtown. The Sioux City Police Department identified the victim Friday as Janice E. Meek of Sioux City. According to a statement from the department, officers responded to the crash at 8.14 p.m. Meek was driving a 2016 Toyota RAV4 westbound on 6th Street and failed to stop as she was approaching the intersection at 6th Street and Wesley Parkway. The RAV4 rear-ended a 2001 Ford F-150, which was subsequently pushed forward into a 2011 Toyota RAV4. Both of those vehicles were stopped at a red traffic light facing westbound, according to the statement. Meek was taken by ambulance to a local hospital where she was pronounced dead. The crash remains under investigation. Driver dies after high-speed pursuit on Gordon Drive. A high-speed chase that began near Lawton, Iowa, ended with the death of the driver in a rollover crash Wednesday on Gordon Drive in Sioux City. Melissa Thede, 40, of Shodan, Iowa, was transported to Mercy One Siouxland Medical Center and was pronounced dead shortly after the crash, which occurred in the westbound lanes of Gordon Drive near the intersection with Spalding Street at 4.32 p.m. Iowa State Patrol Sergeant Kyle Hack said a trooper had observed the driver of the red PT Cruiser speeding on U.S. Highway 20 just west of Lawton and initiated a traffic stop. He turned his lights on and the driver took off, Hack said. The trooper pursued the vehicle west on US-20 and the chase exceeded speeds of 100 miles per hour for seven miles before entering Sioux City. A second trooper joined in just before the vehicle entered the city and proceeded on Gordon Drive, Hack said. Thede continued to drive erratically and at high rates of speed and the state patrol called off the pursuit. Thede's vehicle then struck the back of a Dodge Ram pickup truck and rolled, striking another vehicle before coming to rest on its passenger side in the westbound lanes in front of Mullen awning and siding at 4001 Gordon Drive. Thede was not wearing a seatbelt and did not have any passengers. The driver of the pickup was transported to Unity Point St. Luke's with minor injuries. The driver of the third vehicle was not injured, according to a State Patrol accident report. Westbound Gordon Drive was closed while troopers investigated the accident scene. A tire, wheel, muffler, and large and small pieces of debris from the crash vehicle were scattered in the driving lanes and in the snow along the street. Thede's vehicle was totaled and the other two vehicles had disabling damage. Sioux City's Diocese Lumen to End Print Run The Diocese of Sioux City's official Catholic newspaper, The Lumen, will end its 71-year print run this summer as the diocese transitions to an all-digital news distribution model. The June 27th issue will be The Lumen's last printed edition. Until then, The Lumen will continue to be printed twice a month. The Lumen was formerly known as The Globe, the publication rebranded in 2020. 
The Lumen Media Board reached the decision as paid subscriptions have slumped between 9 and 11% per year in recent years and projections for continued losses in the su subscriber base if the newspaper continued operation, the diocese said in a press release. Subscriptions to Lumen Media's free digital newsletter, Loom Notes, have surpassed the Lumen's printed pr product and its e-edition while the diocese has seen a significant increase of traffic on social media, the press release said. Faced with headwinds like the rest of the print newspaper business, other dioceses in the region have already dropped their print publications or are in the process of doing so, the Sioux City Diocese noted in its press release. The Archdiocese of Omaha's Catholic Voice stopped printing in November of 2021 and the Archdiocese of Dubuque ended the print version of their Witness newspaper in October 2020. The board and I contemplated changing our news delivery method for many years as we were realizing annual decreases to newspaper subscriptions, Sioux City Bishop R. Walker Nicholas said in a statement. From our study of the national trends of Catholic and secular media, it was clear to us that the diocese needed to make a shift to effectively reach more demographics. I am grateful for the guidance of the board members and staff to help us transition to a contemporary communications delivery model. The Diocese of Sioux City first printed a newspaper in 1949, initially as an insert in Our Sunday Visitor, The Globe launched in 1953. Chamber Preps for Legislatures The Siouxland Chamber of Commerce will have an audience next month at the seat of power of both Iowa and South Dakota, advocating for policy action and new ideas in matters like child care and tax policy and pushing for the status quo in other affairs of the Republican-governed states. The Chamber's Des Moines Legislative Day is February 1st. The Dakota Valley Business Council's Peer Legislation Days are February 6th through 7th. The Dakota Valley Business Council is affiliated with the Siouxland Chamber. Roughly 25 to 30 business leaders and other local elected officials traditionally travel to Des Moines for the annual lobbying trip, where they will meet with Governor Kim Reynolds, Lieutenant Governor Adam Gregg, House Speaker Pat Grassley, Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer and other legislative officials and department heads. The peer delegation, estimated at 17 people, will meet with Governor Kristi Noem, Lieutenant Governor Larry Roden, Attorney General Marty Jackley, leaders in both houses of legislature, and several state department heads and secretaries. Believe me, it will be a good trip, said Barbara Slonicker, the Chamber's Executive Vice President. In Des Moines, the Chamber will advocate for the status quo on a number of policies, maintaining tax incremental funding, preservation of existing workforce training funds, sustaining current funding and service levels at Iowa's commercial service airports, protection of the state's right to work law, holding the state's environmental protections to a standard that's no more stringent than federal regulations, among others. The delegation's peer policy priorities, including their status quo positions, are similar. 
The Dakota Valley Business Council's policy sheet for South Dakota is somewhat more stridently small government, noting their oppositions to a state income tax which South Dakota does not levy, their support of the personal property rights of South Dakota employers, and the right of employers to make their own operational decisions rather than being forced to follow federal and state mandates. The Chamber will take a more active lobbying posture in Des Moines on the child care shortage, which has been an obstacle for many working parents and thus a workforce bottleneck. There are staffing shortages. There's accessibility, Sloanicker said. It's becoming not affordable for parents to send their child to a child care center. As of 2022, an Iowa family with the median in household income and an infant in child care spent between 10% to 14% of their income on child care before taxes, according to Iowa Child Care Resource and Referral. Nationally, 7% is considered affordable child care. A state report published in November 2021 found that 23% of Iowans and nearly 35% of rural Iowans lived in a child care desert, which is an area with a shortage of licensed child care providers. That same report, which was a product of Reynolds State Task Force on Child Care, said the state's average monthly cost for child care, more than $1,000, was higher than what the average Iowa family paid for housing at the time. Mercy One Nurses Honored Two nurses at Mercy One Siouxland Medical Center were among those named 2024 Great Iowa Nurses. Andrea Queen and Kristen Lofswold were honored with the annual award. They were among 18 nurses throughout the Mercy One healthcare system who received the award according to a press release from Mercy One. Queen of Sioux City works in the emergency department. She has been with Mercy One Siouxland Medical Center for two and a half years. Lofswold of Sergeant Bluff works in the ICU. She has been with the Mercy One Siouxland Medical Center for 24 years. And then um, Unity Point nurse was also honored. Eileen Hansen of Unity Point Health Sioux City was named a 2024 Great Iowa Nurse. Hansen is among 41 nurses throughout the Unity Point system to receive the award, according to a press release from Unity Point. Nurses like Eileen go above and beyond for not only our patients, but fellow team members. Unity Point Health Sioux City Chief Nursing Officer Wendy Lindley said in a statement. We'll now move to the opinion page and we have an editorial from the Journal Editorial um, Board and its headline, Students Should Want to Sing Anthem, Not Have to Sing. Usually it isn't until later in the session that Iowa legislators start proposing head-scratching bills. But this week we got House Study Bill 587, which would require all teachers and students to sing at least one verse of the national anthem every day. As patriotic as that may sound, it's a misguided move, particularly since most people can't even sing it at a football or basketball game. We cry requiring students to hit those notes before their day begins is a sure way to pull all meaning from the composition. Studying it, which is also proposed, is a better approach. But singing it? Please. Students and teachers could opt out of singing it, but be required to stand and remain silent. How does this square with the First Amendment of the Constitution? Like so many, where did that come from bills in the legislature? This is simply another attempt to wrest control of what students are learning. Never mind that Iowa once led the nation in education. 
Now, politicians are too busy pushing their agendas to realize the problems students face have nothing to do with a song written by Francis Scott Key in 1814. Look closely at Key's past and you will find ample reason not to foster a push for singing it. While the Star Spangled Banner did not become the national anthem until 1931, it has had detractors from the very beginning. Hail Columbia was seen as the go-to song when the country did not have an anthem. More recently, efforts to remove it have been made, calling verses of the song racist. God Bless America and America the Beautiful have been proposed as alternatives. The issue in Iowa boils down to mandating patriotism. Instead of giving students a reason to want to sing it, legislators are demanding they sing it. When it's played before the start of every Sioux City Symphony Orchestra season, it has real meaning and inspires citizens to want to sing it. At the Olympics, it is a source of pride and a salute to the men and women who fought for and shaped our country. But reducing it to an item on a checklist undercuts everything a national anthem stands for. Instead of insisting students and teachers sing it, legislators should pass meaningful bills that encourage them to proudly hail the country it represents. This is just another flex that did not need to happen. We have three letters to the editor today, and so we'll read those now. And our first one is written by Timothy Getty of Hinton, and he writes, The leadership change in Iowa's Department of Education came last year. Four months after Reynolds appointed director Chad Aldis, Reynolds announced Aldis resigned for family reasons. She then quickly appointed Mackenzie Snow, the deputy director of the Virginia Department of Education and an advocate of state-funded private school scholarships to be the director for Iowa. Then Iowa Student First Act, SFA, providing state tax dollars for private education was signed into law January 23, 2023. This act passed quickly. The cost is estimated to be $916 million during the first four years. Within a few weeks, I viewed four portable classrooms being delivered to a private school. Did this school assume passage of the act? Additionally, a Northwest Iowa newspaper on December 9th received an email from Reynolds in which she stated, AEAs across the state will undergo a comprehensive review and looked at more closely aligning AEAs with the Department of Education. Check HSB 542 for details. Then there was the further information provided from the journal on January 4th, indicating probable cuts in higher education are being considered. Pat Grassley mentioned tuition freeze for the state's universities, yet it has been years since the legislation legislature approved a full funding. Regions watched their general education funding reliance slip, flip from 77% state support in 1981 to 31% this year. Meanwhile, reliance of tuition income ballooned to 64% from 21% in 1981. If the intent of this massive deflection of money is to fully endorse private education and crush Iowa's public education, this will do it. And again, this was a letter written by Timothy Getty of Hinton. And our next one is from Karen Heidman of Sioux City. And Karen writes, Iowa's hungry children need you. Not your money, only a minute of your time. 
time enough to sign a petition asking Governor Reynolds to reverse her decision to refuse federal funding to feed food insecure children during the summer months when they cannot access free and reduced priced lunches. In a press release three days before Christmas, Governor Reynolds announced that Iowa would not participate in a new federal program to feed Iowa's neediest children, citing unsustainability and rampant childhood obesity as reasons. Unsustainability, what does that even mean? If it can be sustained for just one summer, that's 68,800 Iowa children fed for three months. How is that a failure? Is it unsustainable by the state, which would pay $2 million to administer the program, yielding $30 million in food aid? The math seems unassailable. The USDA does not consider it unsustainable, calling it a permanent program. The $40 child per, per child per month preloaded card issued in the child's name will be redeemable at farmers markets as well as grocery stores. Is that unsustainable for farmers or obesity worsening? And since when did it become politicians' responsibility to withhold food from children because their parents cannot afford nourishing, less fattening foods? The optics of this should be politically toxic. That's also up to you. Clearly, what's unsustainable is Reynolds' short-sighted, mean-spirited thinking. Please help her understand that by signing the petition at iowahungercoalition.org slash summer EBT, before the extended mid-February application deadline. As of this reading, 8,500 of 10,000 signatures are needed. And again, this was written by Karen Heidman of Sioux City. And our last letter to the editor is written by Diane Baker of Sioux City. And Diane writes, So, Friday, our nation's government may once again go into a partial shutdown. We have no money to run our own government, yet both parties are currently meeting to decide if they will be sending more money, more millions abroad. I ask each of you whether you run your household budget like that. I sure as heck don't. I'm not sure anyone can fix this mess. Please look long and hard at whose box you check at the polls this fall. Perhaps even set your political party loyalties aside for a change and vote for new names and faces or even new parties. Those in office now are all part of the problem, both parties. Let's look for folks interested in being part of the solution, please. And again, this was written by Diane Baker of Sioux City. We'll now move to some entertainment news about a um, play going to be at the Sioux City Community Theater. It is a Faustian take, tale of girl meets boy meets giant bloodthirsty Venus flytrap. That's how Michael Rolina described Little Shop of Horrors, the campy musical comedy he is directing at Sioux City Community Theater at 1401 Riverside Boulevard. Originally based on a low-budget 1960 black comedy movie, the show will be performed for 10 shows beginning Friday and ending February 18th. Both the show's premiere, as well as its finale, will be taking place a week later than originally planned. Rolina said the cast and crew were deep into rehearsal when more than 11 inches of snow fell on Sioux City, followed by an arctic blast of cold air, as well as another 3 to 4 inches of the white stuff. We missed an entire week of rehearsal. That almost never happens. Luckily, the community theater veteran had worked on previous versions of Little Shop of Horrors, either as an actor, director, or set designer. 
Plus, Rolina had assembled a game cast of singers, actors, and puppeteers who were able to bring the story of a klutzy florist shop worker and his carnivorous plant to life, even in less than ideal circumstances. Even during our off week, everybody still rehearsed their parts at home, said Sage Minahan, who played one of the show's doo-wop singing Greek chorus street urchins along with her friend Kellen Howell. It reminded me of what things were like during COVID when everything was done via Zoom. It also helped that we could go back and watch the movie musical of the show, Howell said, referencing the 1986 big screen adaptation of Little Shop of Horrors, which starred Rick Moranis, Steve Martin, and Ellen Green. Green's performance as the musical's hapless leading lady certainly informed Caroline Chauncey's interpretation of the character of Audrey. Even Oh, so Audrey is such an iconic role, Chauncey explained. You have to show the audience how this character could be drawn to both Oren, a nitrous oxide-loving bad boy dentist, and Seymour, a nerdy plant enthusiast. Even though the action on stage might seem over the top, Rolina said it is music, book, and lyrics by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman that gives the show plenty of heart. Yes, the show does involve a man-eating plant named Audrey, but it is also a very song-heavy musical, he said. It helps that the music happens to be very good. So are the props, which involve multiple versions of Audrey going from dainty to ginormous. This is where my previous Little House of Horror experience pays off, Rolina remarked. I know how to construct Audrey, having done the show both in a community theater production as well as in college. To be fair, designing a meat-munching Muppet does seem challenging, so does bringing the darn thing to life. In the Sioux City Community Theater production of Little Shop of Horrors, the role of Audrey is assigned to two different puppeteers, as well as an offstage actor who handled all of the singing and dialogue. Despite the truncated rehearsal schedule and the one-week delay of opening night, Rolina is ecstatic over this version of a musical classic. I've done Little Shop in the past, but now I'm working with the younger cast. I love seeing how they're interpreting the show while making it their own. And if you want to go to see this, this is uh, going to be at the Sioux City Community Theater, and um, it's at 7.30 on February 1st, 2nd, the 9th and 10th and 11th, the 15th, 16th, and 17th. And then at 2 p.m. on February 4th, February 11th, and 18th. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, January 28th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now go to today's obituaries. Andrea L. Fetterman, 58, of Moville, died Thursday, January 25th at her home. Celebration of Life will be from 4 to 6 p.m. Monday, February 5th at Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. David Eugene Mace, and that's spelled M-E-I-S, died peacefully on January 11th in Chaska, Minnesota. A celebration of David's life will be held at a later date in Minnesota. David was born on February 7, 1995, in Sioux City, to Robert and Holly Mace. David attended Sioux City schools until moving to the Minneapolis area upon graduation. 
David attended Minnesota Community and Technical College and then the University of Minnesota where he earned his undergraduate and master's degree in theater education. It is there where he met his loving girlfriend, Kayla, with whom he planned to share his life. While going to school, David had several jobs, but his favorite was at Wagging Tails, where he developed a love for dogs. After graduation, David taught theater to middle school students at the Twin Cities German Immersion School. David dearly loved the school, its faculty and staff, and most of all, his amazing students. He felt strongly and often spoke passionately about creating a better, more equitable education system for both teachers and students. Theater was David's passion from an early age. He appeared in many productions at West High School, Lamb Theater, under the tutelage of Diana and Russ Woolley in Sioux City, and Minnesota Community Technical College. He had the uncanny ability to, of bringing the incredible experience of live theater to his audience by taking on an eclectic array of acting roles, from the intensity of Columbinus to an enduring performance in The Christmas Carol. He left the audience in stitches with a hilarious performance as a young fool singing in the song Arkansas How Blessed We Are in the musical Big River. But perhaps his best and most moving role was Toby in a production of Sweeney Todd. David enjoyed the outdoors and spending time in the North Minnesota woods with friends that he developed an incredible bond with while living in Minneapolis. David was a kind, generous, and gentle soul who loved spending time with family, especially his parents, and was adored by his nieces and nephew. David was a friend of Bill W. and helped countless others in recovery. David made the world a better place. Our memories are richer because of him, and our lives are better because he was a part of us. He will be missed by all who knew him. Memorials may be made in David's honor to Lamb Theater, 417 Market Street, Sioux City, 51103. Deanna J. Bomar, South Sioux City, 85, passed away Wednesday, January 24th at a Sioux City care facility. Memorial services are pending for a later date. Arrangements are through the Meyer Brothers Morningside. Beverly Joyce Yeager Brown passed away on January 21st at the age of 81 in Omaha. A memorial service will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, February 3rd at Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel and Terman at Graceland Park Cemetery. Visitation will be Friday evening from 5 to 7 p.m. at the funeral home. Bev was born on October 20, 1942, in Sioux City to Laura Carlson Yeager and William Stan Yeager. Beverly was preceded in death by her parents, brother, sister, husband, stepson, and stepdaughter. <clears throat> Bev graduated from Moville High School in 1960 and attended Iowa State University for one year. She de dedicated 36 years of her life to Goodwill Industries before retiring. In her free time, Bev enjoyed engaging in various crafts and sharing her creations with friends, family, and co-workers. In lieu of flowers, the family kindly requests donations to the American Cancer Society or Goodwill Industries in Bev's memory. Aaron Dean Grimsley, 62, of Sioux City, passed away January 18th at his home after an extended illness. Per his wishes, cremation has taken place and there will be no services at this time. Arrangements are under the direction of Waterbury Funeral Service. 
Aaron was born on October 4, 1961 in Fort Dodge to Lawrence and Donna Holland Grimsley. He graduated from Fort Dodge High School in 1980 where he participated in basketball, football, and track. He went on to the University of South Dakota where he was a member of the Coyote, Coyote football team. After college, Aaron worked part-time at Miles Inn, then for Messer Distribute, later Glazers, where he developed his fondness for cores. Most recently, Aaron was working as a pipe insulator traveling throughout the country. He loved working and his union brothers. Aaron enjoyed cooking, riding his Harley, golfing, playing pool and darts, and his dog Husker. Aaron's generosity will continue through his gift of organ and tissue donation. On December 22, 2016, he married the love of his life, Mandy Brewer, who passed away in April 2023. His daughters would like to thank all of Aaron's dear friends who supported him throughout his illness. We hope all his friends will enjoy a cold course in honor of Aaron, a.k.a. A-Train, Big A, Grimms, and Dad. Barbara Ann Peterson, 65, of Sioux City, died peacefully at her home on January 20th. Barb was born to Dolores Ann James and Mark L. James on April 30th, 1958, after many years of trying for another child. Barb's only sibling, Mark Norman James, eight years her senior, of Rancho Cucamonga, California, passed in 2020. Barb graduated from North High School in 1976, being part of the first graduating class to attend all four years in the new school. She married Jean Kapler in 1977 and the following year welcomed her only child, Amanda Lynn Kapler. The trio lived in North Carolina for a few years and divorced upon returning to Iowa. Barb also lived in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma for a few years for, in the late 90s while married to Rick Peterson. During her time in Oklahoma, she found her true passion of fostering orphaned and injured wildlife. During her life, she touched the lives of many animals in need, but this paled in comparison to the mark she left on those who were honored enough to call her their friend. Most people remember Barb from her antics at her various places of employment through the years, waitressing and bartending, various packing plants, MCI stream, to name a few. She made an in indelible imprint on everyone she met. Barb loved the games of cribbage and AC Doocy. She loved houseplants, television shows and movies, angels, astrology, jewelry, purses, and her various pets. Her current pet was a sweet dog named Boo Boo that she hand fed and took everywhere she uh, with her. Barb was in poor health the last few years and was adamant that she did not want any memorial services saying, I don't want people to be sad and remember me like that. In honoring those wishes, there will only be a celebration of life around her birthday with details to be announced later. And in lieu of flowers, donations can be made to the Iowa DNR. And that is it for the obituaries today. Uh, next article is written by Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal, and it's about the um, Vega Voyana Voters Town Hall on um, yesterday, on Saturday. Saturday morning, five Northwest Iowa legislators fielded questions from residents on an array of topics, including hotly contested issues such as the possible overhaul of area education agencies and the use of eminent domain to build a carbon capture pipeline. 
State Senator Kevin Alans, Republican from Salix, and State Representatives J.D. Scholten, Democrat from Sioux City, Bob Henderson, Republican from Sioux City, Ken Carlson, Republican from Ottawa, and Jacob Bossman, Republican from Sioux City, attended the event, which was hosted by the League of Women Voters of Sioux City and Siouxland Cares at the Sioux City Public Museum. At the start of the forum, which brought out more than 50 people, League of Women Voters Sioux City board member Carolyn Goodwin shared five principles of the state lawmakers should abide by. Don't make false assumptions. Find common ground. Don't make blanket statements. Take a break from conversations going nowhere and address the ideas, not the individual. For nearly 90 minutes, the five politicians addressed plenty of ideas. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds has proposed a major overhaul of the state's nine area education agencies, or AEAs, which work to support special education services. Reynolds has pushed for redesigning the funding structure of the 50-year-old agencies, streamlining the services they offer, and creating new oversight in the Iowa Department of Education. Under the plan, money would go to K-12 public school districts, who, which would determine whether to use that funding for those AEA services or find similar services elsewhere, either at a different AEA or through a private company. At present, state and federal funding go to the AEAs to fund the services they provide. I've received over 800 emails on this. Zero are in support of this bill, said Scholten, the Iowa House District 1 representative. The governor should be talking to AEAs about what we should be doing to improve this. This is not Iowans asking for this. This is the governor working with her corporate consultant. Alon, Senator for District 7, acknowledged the proposal has had an aggressive time frame, but said, I think the objective is good. Henderson, a former school teacher and the District 2 representative, said he did not think schools would make major changes in the first year after passage of such legislation, at the, and that the intent was to provide better measurable support for our special needs students. Bossman, District 14 representative, highlighted the funding aspect of the bill. I think there's an intent to provide a little more oversight of the funds, he said. Late in the proceedings, Northwest Area Education Agency Chief Administrator Dan Cox asked the forum guests, what would be wrong with having a comprehensive review involving staff, teachers, parents, legislators, Department of Education, and take six, seven months? Henderson and Bossman both said more information would be better, and Alans called the process to date deliberative. If you agree a comprehensive review is needed, you would not support the bill then, Shulton asked his colleagues, which yielded no direct response. Carlson, the House District 13 representative, told the crowd, Republicans are not a rubber stamp for the governor. A number of attendees then applauded. And then the next topic was the carbon capture pipeline. This past week, final arguments concluded over Summit Carbon Solutions Pipeline Permit, and the Iowa Utilities Board is now working to decide whether to approve the project, which has prompted criticism from members of the Democratic and Republican parties. Summit has maintained its five-state carbon capture pipeline project would benefit Iowa's economy and reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and that those theorized positives should justify the use of eminent domain. It's part of our freedom to have property rights, said Carlson, a retired farmer and opponent of the use of eminent domain for the project. 
In 2023, Carlson voted against legislation that would have required companies reach voluntary deals to buy 90% of the land on their route before pursuing the use of eminent domain. He explained his vote Saturday morning by saying there should be 100% protection from eminent domain or nothing at all. Bossman expressed the belief that I don't think this is a good use of eminent domain. Scholten pushed back against the idea the project is necessary for the future success of the renewable fuels industry in Iowa and noted how heterogeneous opposition to the plan is. This is the only thing that doesn't have clear-cut lines, he said. <clears throat> the next topic was gender identity. A bill introduced by Iowa State lawmaker Jeff Shipley, a Republican from Fairfield, Fairfield would remove gender identity from the Iowa Civil Rights Act, which prevents discrimination based on identifying characteristics like age, race, color, religion, national origin, or disability. The act was amended in 2007 to add sexual orientation and gender identity. Under Shipley's legislation, gender dysphoria, which the American Psychiatric Association defines as psychological distress that results when an individual has a gender identity that is different from their sex at birth, would be added to the act's covered disabilities. The bill came up in the House Judiciary Committee, which is chaired by Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison. Opponents have said the bill is insulting because it conflates trans identity with mental illness and would harm a lot of people. Former school city school board member Bernie Scalero asked the panel for their opinion on the bill. Alon said he believes that the idea that there are more uh, than two genders is destructive to society, and he said found, he found merit in the bill. The National Institutes of Health have said sex is a multidimensional biological construct based on anatomy, physiology, genetics, and hormones, while gender can be broadly defined as a multidimensional construct that encompasses gender identity and expression as well as social and cultural expectations about status, characteristics, and behavior as they are associated with sex traits. Scholten said, I am disappointed in the amount of energy spent focusing on, especially when it comes to kids, their genitalia, especially when it comes to stuff like this when we're taking away rights. Bossman expressed hesitance about making changes to the Iowa Civil Rights Code. This is a touchy subject, but I think it's been working well for the past 17 years, Bossman said, referencing the year 2007 when gender identity was added to the code. Henderson told the audience he had read the bill and considered it fair because he said it, transgender identity would still be protected. During the 2022 election cycle, ads for Henderson criticized former Sioux City Representative Steve Hansen for supporting biological males in women's sports. And then the uh, next topic was on education savings accounts. According to data published by the state of Iowa on Friday, two-thirds of the nearly 17,000 Iowa students who received taxpayer-funded financial assistance to attend private K-12 school this year already were attending private school. In 2023, the Iowa legislature passed a private school financial assistance program which allows some K-12 students to receive a taxpayer-funded scholarship equal to the state's per-pupil public education funding. Henderson said he talked with a school board member who told him they felt the law would have a positive impact on the school. The question for the group used the word 
vouchers, which Carlson took issue with. We've got to get off of that word, he said. Schulten lambasted the bill for being the most fiscally irresponsible to ever pass in Iowa. The, this event was the first of three legislative forums the League of Women Voters of Sioux City will host in the coming months. Future Iowa State Local Legislators Town Halls will be on February 24th and March 23rd, also at 10 a.m. in the Sioux City Public Museum. Ex-nurse sentenced for stealing fentanyl. A former nurse was sentenced Friday to nine months in prison for stealing fentanyl and other drugs from a Sioux City hospital. Morgan Morales, 32, of Sioux City, pleaded guilty in August in U.S. District Court in Sioux City to one count of acquiring a controlled substance by means of misrepresentation, fraud, deception, and subterfuge, and one count of false statements relating to health care matters. The federal sentencing guideline formula suggested a sentencing range of 6 to 12 months, and Chief U.S. District Judge Leonard Strand, who said federal sentences don't punish drug theft by health care workers harsh enough, chose to sentence Morales toward the higher end of the range because of the extreme aggravation of facts in the case. For approximately eight years, Morales, who worked at Unity Point Health, St. Luke's, stole fentanyl, morphine, hydromorphone, and hydrocodone, which were supposed to be given to hospital patients. She took the drugs for her own personal use by falsifying documents, including omission of information on required log entries, tracking the disbursement of controlled substances. Hundreds of vials of fentanyl were stolen. It's stunning how long this went on, Strand said. In August 2022, St. Luke's filed a complaint with the Iowa Board of Nursing, alleging Morales misappropriated medication. She was fired later that month. The nursing board charged her in January 2023, and board documents showed that during a search of Morales' home, more than 100 drug vials, syringes, boxes of medications, and at least one patient ID bracelet were found. The board revoked Morales' nursing license in June. Morales' lawyer said that since her arrest, she has undergone drug addiction treatment. There is nothing I can say that fixes the trust that I have broke, Morales said before she was sentenced. I regret doing it. I'm ashamed of doing it. Strand allowed Morales to self-surrender to prison on a date to be determined. After completing her prison term, she will be on supervised release for two years. Sioux City Man Wins 500000 Lottery Prize a Sioux City man claimed $500,000 prize on Friday. The Iowa Lottery announced Joshua Sordrager won the seventh top prize in his $500,000 cash scratch game. He bought the ticket from the Hy-Vee at 2827 Hamilton Boulevard and got the prize from the Iowa Lotto headquarters in Clive. According to the Iowa Lottery, the $500,000 cash game is a $50 scratcher with prizes ranging from $50 to $500,000. Players try to match numbers in the playing area on tickets in the game to win a prize. The game has overall odds of winning of 1 in 3.9. Alvord Mann pleads not guilty of vehicular homicide. An Alvord Mann has pleaded not guilty of vehicular homicide. Caleb DeBay, 21, entered his written plea Thursday in Sioux County District Court into charges of vehicular homicide, operating while intoxicated and vehicular homicide reckless driving. DeBay was driving an Audi A4 West on 300th Street 
near Fillmore Avenue, northeast of Rock Valley, at approximately 12.35 a.m. July 30th. When he failed to negotiate a curve, left the road and struck a culvert, causing the car to become airborne. Passenger Haley Bleak, 35, of Rock Valley, was not wearing a seatbelt and was ejected through the windshield, and the car came to rest on top of her. She was pronounced dead at a local hospital, and DeBay was treated for injuries. According to court documents, DeBay was driving at least 126 miles per hour at the time of the crash. Testing of DeBay's blood showed a blood alcohol concentration of 0.157%, nearly double the legal limit, and the presence of controlled substances. DeBay was arrested September 1st in an unrelated drunk driving case in Rock Valley. He has pleaded not guilty to first offense operating while intoxicated and awaits trial. And we'll now move to Dear Abby in our first letter. I'm irritated by my neighbors, and I don't know quite how to approach it. I live in a densely populated but quiet neighborhood. New neighbors moved in a couple of years ago, and after moving in, they hung a wind chime on their front porch. This isn't your average wind chime. If I had to guess, the chimes are at least five feet long. At first, I didn't think much of it. Those whimsical little melodies you hear every time the wind blows can be cute, I guess. But it gets quite windy here, and I'm constantly distracted by the loud, clanging chimes. I don't want to be the type of person who knocks on their door and tells them how I feel. I was hoping you could chime in. Signed, Disturbed in Rhode Island. And the response. Make it your business to find out what the noise ordinances are in your neighborhood. Then become the type of neighbor who knocks on their door. When you do, wear a smile and bring along a small gift. Explain that you don't want to appear to be a complainer, but could they please modify those wind chimes? Because on windy days, the constant banging gives you a headache. If they are good neighbors and cooperative, be grateful. However, if they aren't, you may have to pursue legal means. Dear Abby, my husband and I have been together for 12 years, but things have changed. We sleep in separate beds, we both work, and we spend little time together, and we can't have a decent conversation. I feel like I have a roommate who just comes and goes as he pleases. He always has an excuse for not spending time with me and our daughter. I don't feel like we are married anymore. What should I do? Signed, Dissatisfied in Virginia. And the response. Tell your husband you feel like you're living with a roommate rather than a spouse. Tell him you miss the closeness you once shared and ask if he is willing to work on it. What is currently happening isn't fair to you or your daughter. Then make an appointment with a marriage counselor to discuss the state of your marriage with him if he's willing or without him. Dear Abby, I recently married and my 19-year-old son and I moved in with my new husband. My son works full-time and goes to school part-time. My husband expects him to do dishes and other chores. My son doesn't, does take care of the recycling and trash on a weekly basis. I work from home part-time and I don't mind doing the chores. This is causing a lot of contention between us. Am I wrong to defend my son? Signed, Willing in Florida. And the response, you should not have to defend your son. There are now three adults living under that roof. Your son is not a freeloader. He is working full-time and taking classes. All three of you should be doing the dishes and other chores as needed. And you should all be in agreement about the timing and rotation of who will do what and when. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, January 28th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. 
You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.